today on EdgeFX. But I see historical research like Pete's working its way through farm organizations that do testify before Congress and do have access to policymakers. Uh, you know, not that they win, but they're certainly small victories and big defeats. Historian Anastasia Day speaks with sociologist Jess Gilbert and historian Pete Daniel at the Agricultural History Society's annual meeting in May 2018. In the conversation that follows, Jess Gilbert and Pete Daniel share anecdotes about how they came to study agricultural history and the trends that they have noticed in the field over the past few decades. Anastasia Day asked them to reflect on their different approaches to this study of the New Deal, the impact of their work on agricultural policy, and the Farm Bill that will expire in September of this year. My name is Anastasia Day, and I'm sitting here with Jess Gilbert and Pete Daniel at the 99th year of the Agricultural History Society, their annual meeting down here in St. Petersburg, Florida. Thanks for sitting down with me, guys. Yeah, glad to be here. I wanted to first ask you how each of you came to history as a discipline. Pete, you've gone on the record saying, when I was growing up, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a historian, much less an historian. And Jess, you are actually not a historian, right. but a sociologist. By training and profession. That's right. So That's how right. did the three of us get to be sitting here talking about <laughs> agricultural history? Yeah. Well, this is Jess. I've always loved history from college and minored in it. And then before I went to grad school in 1976, I got a grant from the then new National Endowment for the Humanities, a youth grant to study Southern agrarianism in the 1930s and interviewed lots of people and did a lot of archival work. So sort of like master's level research and published my first article in agricultural history not in a sociology journal. Much of my sociological work is historical. There's a field of sociology called historical sociology, and that's sort of where I fit. And then, uh, you know, more recently, in the middle of my career, I decided to look at New Deal agricultural policy and really, I think, uh, almost became a historian. You know, did archival <laughs> research, extensive archival research, and Aim high. Uh, uh, <laughs> so uh, drifted into this organization probably over 20 years ago, and I come to these meetings every year. What about you, Pete? Well, history was the only thing I was any good at. <laughs> Somehow I don't quite believe that. <laughs> but uh, in high school, I had an excellent history teacher. We wrote term papers, which I somehow got into. And then in college at Wake Forest University, I had very good professors. And probably the thing that really converted me to being a historian was a class on Southern history by Professor David Smiley, who basically challenged every concept of the old traditional Southern interpretations that based on mostly <laughs> segregation and all that. And he just 
killed all the sacred cows. <laughs> and I learned that attacking is much better than defending. <laughs> so that's how I got into history. And I'm fortunate that Wake Forest started an MA program the year I graduated because I, I didn't have the grades to go to a first-rate school in graduate school. So they needed warm bodies in their inaugural program. So I was a warm body and did an MA at Wake. And then I taught for a while, worked in a factory for a while, and then I uh, went to the University of Maryland. So I guess now we come to the other half of the equation. We've talked about how each of you came to history. How did each of you come to agriculture? It strikes me that both of you share in common that you grew up in southern farmland. Could you speak a bit to, as to how that shaped your, your interest and your perspective and position as a scholar? Yeah, well, my field within sociology is rural sociology. And I'm from a town of fewer than a thousand people in northeast Louisiana. And once I discovered that there was such a field as rural sociology, that's just where I felt comfortable. You know, I understood, you know, my dad farmed. I worked on the farm, baled hay in the summer and that kind of thing. And I just sort of understood naturally, more or less, you know, through growing up in that way, you know, rural ways and agriculture and farmers. So it was really natural. So that's what I studied. I, I did research on farmland ownership, my dissertation, and uh, the earlier work on the 1930s that I mentioned. So that's just, you know, where I felt most comfortable and seemed like I had a head start on some people in that area, that subfield, and so could make contribution there rather than, say, urban sociology <laughs> or urban history. <laughs> well, I, similar to Jess, uh, my grandfather was a tobacco farmer, so I, I did a lot of farm work both for him and for other farmers. But the thing that really uh, got me in agricultural history was that after I'd gone off to college, and then even graduate school and returned to the little town of just over a thousand where I grew up. <laughs> Ooh, big city. Uh, everything had changed. The town when I grew up was bustling on Saturday afternoons, little farmers coming in to get a haircut, to bank, to go to the pharmacy, to do whatever, shoot pool, get a haircut, all that kind of things. And when I came back in the late 60s, it was just a dead place because a lot of farmers had left the agriculture and people shopped at malls. And I was scratching my head about what had happened. And it happened so fast. You know, I go off to college, here's, here's a little town, it's thriving, and you come back a decade later and it's just flat. Wow. And that was, I think, the basis for me doing Breaking the Land was to try to figure out mm. what happened. And so when I got into that kind of thinking, it went all the way back to the 1880s to try to get that continuity up, up through the, you know, a century of change to see what elements I could isolate that you know, would explain what happened. Do you too feel that when you started attending these meetings and working in agricultural history that a lot of other people in the field also came from similar backgrounds and had the same motivation of to some degree explaining their own experiences? 
I think so, for the most part. And again, it's it's parallel uh, to rural sociology. Mm-hmm. You know, not many people from New York City go into rural sociology. <laughs> you know, it's Iowa farm kids, you know, mm-hmm. or Mississippi farm kids, by and large. And I think it's probably true with ag history, although, you know, I'm not certain. With new movements, I know that we'll get to new trends in agricultural or or rural history that may be changing. Mm -hmm. But I would think, for the most part, that uh, traditionally ag historians are from rural areas. What do you think, Pete? Uh, As far as I know, I I think there were some who, who weren't who were uh, not didn't have a rural background but when i came into the organization i I could say it was very conservative that is their interpretation of rural life was very connected to mechanization's triumph and uh, examining different agencies and whatever and it was mostly positive and of course when my writing is not usually positive about those kinds of things. So immediately I felt like the organization needed to change to attack more current things because things were changing. Of course, in the, in the 60s, you know, African-American history started emerging and women's history and on and on and on. And for a long time, the Agricultural History Society was not cognizant of that very much. And then suddenly it blossomed. You know, it started bringing in a lot of women, African Americans, and ideas that have rejuvenated it and made it what it is today. And and is this the point at which you two met in that influx of, of new scholarship and ideas uh, at agricultural history, or when did your two paths first cross? Well, I think I remember. I was one of many of uh, Pete's admirers from afar. Who so isn't? I, I may remember uh, better than Pete about how we met. I think it might have been, do you remember Mary Neff? You know, a grad student in Wisconsin. I was mm-hmm. on her committee and I was starting to study New Deal agricultural policy. And so Mary wrote a great book on transformation of the Midwest in the early 20th century. Told me, you know, I was going to Washington to use the National Archives. And she said, well, you've got to meet Pete Daniel. <laughs> so I knocked on his door at the Smithsonian one day and introduced myself. Uh, and he gave me a copy of Breaking the Land. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, invited me to the Tuesday night uh, Irish Times event at the bar. And uh, we've been friends ever since. So that, so, And this would have been in the very early 90s, 90 or 91, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think. So my introduction to agricultural history is is actually very close to that story. I attended this meeting for the first time just last year, and I walked in, and I met Pete, who I've been told to look up by my advisor, and I introduced myself, and he invited me to Tuesday drinks when my (laughs) Smithsonian Fellowship started in a few months, and I met you, Jess, and you gave me a copy of Planning Democracy, so I walked away from my first encounter with this field with an invitation to Tuesday drinks and a new book, (laughs) much like you did (laughs) upon meeting Uh, Pete. (laughs) Which, um, 
brings me to another one of my questions. In so many different book acknowledgments and the CVs of many scholars I admire, I see both your names pop up. Students of Jess Gilberts who go and then boast having Pete Daniel as their advisor at the Smithsonian. You two have cumulatively shaped a, a huge number of scholars um, working in this field and across environmental history more broadly. What do you think you were have been trying to impart to the scholars each of you have affected? Well, I, th- I should say first that I think there's an order of magnitude difference between the impact we've had on the field, even numerically in terms of individuals. I mean, I've, uh, you know, through my study of the New Deal and, and being at Wisconsin, in this interdisciplinary uh, center of the Nelson Institute Center for Culture, History, and the Environment, uh, that's where I came across lots of history grad students, history of science grad students, and, you know, a couple before that, like Mary Meth and Kendra Smith, but mainly through Che. And so that's where, you know, the effect has come. And that's over the last 20 years, say. You know, not mm-hmm. not uh, you know half as long as, as Pete's influence and and much smaller, but uh, but I think to answer your question, I think to look again at the conventional wisdom or current interpretations of in particular New Deal. You know, my research takes a different slant than Pete's and and other people that established the field and this way in the 1970s you know, and 80s and, and subsequent decades. And building on his work, I give it a different slant, look at it, uh, you know, a new interpretation. And I think that's attracted some you know, graduate student, uh, young scholars. Well, I should say first that I think that the fellows who worked with me taught me more than I ever taught them. One of these things where they came in as pre-doctoral, most of them, they were at the height of what they'll ever know because they just taken prelims and was bristling with ideas and new scholarship. And so I listened to them a lot. I encouraged them everywhere I could. I read uh, chapter drafts. I was on some dissertation committees, which I really enjoyed because mm-hmm. these were excellent students. And I enjoyed working with them. And so I I should say here that over the years that I was there, those fellows and people who came to the Irish Times on Tuesday nights to discuss history with us, I now have three and a half shelves of books that these scholars wrote. Wow. So they were good. (laughs) I enjoyed every, every minute of working with them. I like to read their chapters and dissertations and serve on their committees and just talk to them like at the Irish Times we talk about anything. Sometimes it would be history, other times it would be nonsense. <laughs> Since Jess has started to open this can of worms, I'd, I'd love to hear maybe first from, from Pete what your major interpretive thrust um, has been over your career as you see it and then Jess a bit about how you see yourself responding to it and working um, within and upon the legacy established by Pete? It'd be very difficult for me to put that in a few words. I just remember (laughs) when I was working on Breaking the Land, I'd done the research and then I 
I had a job for a year where I could work on it. And then I had a year where I went back to those notes to start. And when I started reading those notes, it was like, oh, this is not what I thought happened. It's different. And a lot of that difference was in the way agriculture, the transformation of agriculture went on. And so I was very interested in trying to figure that out. New Deal, I did bit favorably about it earlier. I was became more and more uh, negative on it because of the way uh, agriculture was headed. And I got, I've done a lot of legal research that opens questions about a lot of things to do with, with agriculture. And then I got interested in pesticides through an exhibit I worked on, Science and American mm -hmm. Life. And did research on pesticides, which steered me around into studying pesticides in the South. And that was just eye-opening because of the people in the Agricultural Research Service were so defensive of chemicals. They were almost in alliance with the chemical companies. And the things that were being sprayed were illegal. I mean, parathion, like one pilot said, you spray it over the fields, it kills, uh, it kills the insects, but it kills fish, kills cattle, kills you know, about anything that hits it. It's lethal. And I, this was not acknowledged by the Agricultural Research Service or by the chemical companies. So I found lots of things. So basically what I'm saying is I look for things that are not apparent or, or the conventional wisdom. Almost when I hear conventional wisdom, it's like I automatically start turning around <laughs> and trying to look behind it. <laughs> and just my understanding is that you've written before that you started by finding yourself very critical of the New Deal. And as you began to examine it, you came to um, have more positive feelings of it. So in some ways, an inverse trajectory. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Before I get to that, let me say, I, when I uh, was developing my interpretation of New Deal agricultural policy, I would, and, you know, giving talks or giving lectures, I would always start by saying, this is the known New Deal. You know, what mm. we know, what historians, and this would have been over the last 10, 15 years. And then I realized, preparing for this partly, what I meant by the known New Deal is what Pete Daniel had written about it. <laughs> That's why it was known. <laughs> and uh, meaning uh, uh, an interpretation of the, the first uh, big Ag Act, the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, uh, that set up the Agricultural Adjustment Administration. And as Pete emphasizes in his work, the, the devastation that that did, especially to Southern sharecroppers and tenant farmers, black and white, that's what I learned. That was sort of the basis of my work. And that's why early on I was critical you know, of the New Deal because I was following Pete Daniels' work of the 80s and 90s. What happened, I think, when I got in the archives, I focus on a different New Deal, is one way to put it. Much later, not starting even until 38, 1938, 
and not really going strong until the 1940s. And, you know, most historians say, well, the New Deal is long gone by then. But for me, for what I'm looking at, you know, some historians call it the Third New Deal, starting in the late 30s. So I'm looking at a particular thrust of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the left wing, you could say, of USDA, the progressive reformist agencies like the Farm Security Administration and the Bureau of Agricultural Economics, which was a a research agency, basically. So, I mean, I didn't discover this. Richard Kirkendall writes about it in his Social Scientist and uh, Farm Politics in the Age of Roosevelt and several unpublished dissertations and, and others but I focused on this as my, the main part of my interpretation. So it's a very different New Deal, sort of empirically, objectively, I think. We're looking in different archives, reading different things. And it did very different things. I mean, it too was critical of the AAA and of uh, many of the same things that, that Pete you know, criticizes in his work. So, you know, there's different ways to talk about it, but but one is telling a different story. And so that leads to different emphases and and stresses. It it seems to me in reading both of your bodies of work that one of the themes running through both of your stories is democracy. Jess, you've written that big states as well as social scientists have been effective agents of democracy and you um, want to suggest that they can be again. Big government can democratize society. Whereas, Pete, a lot of your work on the USDA has focused on uh, ways in which uh, the USDA has, quote, cheated democracy and subverted the representation and voices of farmers uh, through voting suppression, through undermining their rights, through collaborations with private interests. So this common theme of democracy makes me want to ask both of you, why is studying agriculture important to understanding democracy in American history? What do you see as the essential connection between democracy and agriculture? Well, Jess's work great question. Uh, <laughs> is looking at administrators who, as he said, were left-wing, who were more liberal in their attitudes, and trying to implement democratic programs. The things that I look at, on the other hand, have been things like local agricultural committees, ASCS, and especially in with African Americans, the book I did on dispossession, how these local committees subverted democracy. They fixed the system so that African Americans couldn't vote and couldn't elect people to these, quote, democratic <laughs> committees. So there are things like that, that I'm on the ground looking at one thing, these particular committees. And so that's how I, I can say that some of these USDA programs subverted democracy. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with Pete's interpretation in his you know, latest book. The title is just Dispossession. It's, right? it's Dispossession. <laughs> yes. It's on uh, what the state against the civil rights of African-American farmers is. You know, my other work 
related to the New Deal is on African Americans, you know, more contemporary. But so Pete's work, you know, is great background. And I also fully agree with Pete's interpretation of post-World War II changes, you know, in USDA and in agricultural policy more generally. But I did discover in this uh, window of time from the late 30s to the early 40s, I mean, and no later than 42, I mean, you know, so just uh, three or four years, there was this democratizing effort, I think, within USDA among these agencies that I referred to earlier. And the basis of it, I mean, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson was, uh, you know, a slave owner and Democrat in the sense of his writings, his, his vision, you know, the Declaration of Independence, obviously, his writing of that in his vision. So, you know, there's this contradiction that he embodies that the nation, I think, uh, you know, is still living out. But that agrarian tradition, you know, Henry Wallace and the others in the New Deal that I study, you know, hearkened back to that, to the democratic side of, of that tradition. And in an odd way, my work is similar to Pete's in that while he's reviving and, and celebrating the memory and, and writing about recovering the losers, you know, the people that were tractored off or, or uh, New Dealed off, <laughs> you know, through, uh, through New Deal programs, I'm looking at policies that lost and, oh. and I think really disappeared in, in a way, I mean, different than, than Pete's subjects, but this program and these policies, I think, were just forgotten. They disappeared in the middle of World War II. Even the participants had many other things to do and turned to these other, uh, other programs. So I'm trying to revive what I see as this democratic agrarian tradition within a certain part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And so and I think it's important because, I mean, democracy is, you know, at risk today. And, you know, always has been. It's always a fight. It's always an ongoing struggle, a contestation. And uh, Cornell West says somewhere, you know, wherever you find democracy, celebrate it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of a, that inspired me to, to, you know, write the book. It's clear that both of you think of your work in explicitly political terms in many ways. Pete, you've testified before the House a number of times um, on on various issues such as the reauthorization of the National Historic Publication and Records Commission, um, their reauthorization, and other issues. You've talked about how curators and museums need to be taking political stands uh, with the history they present to the public. And Jess, it's equally clear that you're engaged. You've co-authored papers with specific policy recommendations based on the agricultural re uh, historical research you've done. How do you see the role of the scholar activist changing over time? And what maybe are your hopes for the future of academic activism? I think the first thing that 
scholars need to do is is do good research. I mean, mm. that's what that's sort of our job. That's what we're trained to do. So I think that's the first thing, and you know that takes time and energy, and you know that's where most of the effort goes. But again, being in rural sociology, it's not just abstract theoretical work. For the most part, rural sociology, as you know, started in the progressive era along with agricultural economics and many applied agricultural science, sciences. And from the very beginning, the idea was to improve rural life, you know, to work with rural citizens, farm families, and others to see how positive social change could come about. So I see myself in that tradition. Carl Taylor, the leading rural sociologist of the New Deal, you know, that's his, that was his whole idea. He was president not only of uh, the Rural Sociological Society, but of the American Sociological Association, the big national thing. And his presidential address in 1946 was called Sociology and Common Sense, by which he meant these things could, should be combined. You know, sociologists should be engaged in working with citizens, rural or otherwise, to bring about a better life. And that's part and parcel of the whole positive side, the democratic side of the land-grant tradition and USDA. I mean, that's the rhetoric, and I think the reality in some cases. And so it's sort of easy for rural sociologists to be involved in, in positive social change, I think. Well, I don't know how historians can really change policy. And I offer the example of, I thought after I wrote Breaking the Land or dispossession or book on pesticides, that there might be some reaction from the people who failed to, to do the things that I pointed out. But I've never heard a word from the Department of Agriculture. They're like the big Pillsbury Doughboys. They're so big <laughs> and flexible that you can, you can punch it and it just pops right back out. It doesn't matter. And I don't think I, anything I've written has ever made a bit of difference as far as changing policy. And I don't see how that can happen because of all of the things that are between scholarship and implementing changes. And that has to do, of course, with lobbyists. It has to do with farm organizations. It has to do with uh, certain prejudices against this or that or the other among legislators. And also a deeply conservative nature of the Department of Agriculture itself. I was always perplexed when I was doing dispossession at how it, during the Kennedy administration the, nothing was done to protect these African Americans who were losing their land and it went down from the Department of Agriculture to state departments of agriculture to all those county committees and the county committees pretty much did what they wanted to and were not rebuked. They can discriminate all day long and nobody's going to ever say anything to them. So how do you change things like that policy-wise? It's very difficult because you have to have some kind of 
reformation into part of agriculture to enlighten them on things they should be doing, things that are democratic or that are even humane. Well, let me disagree with Pete on this, using his work and not mine. <laughs> uh, we both know, Pete and I both know and you know, have talked with and sometimes worked with the, the largest organization of black farmers in the country, uh, a civil rights era born organization, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, based in right outside of Atlanta. And I get their newsletter and, you know, I'm in touch with them. And they use your book. You know, they use your book because it documents unequivocally the history that they have suffered, so to speak. And this organization was founded in 1967. So it was a long-standing organization. And they have access because of their history, their persistence, their good works, they have access to policymakers in the Department of Agriculture, including the Secretary of Agriculture, who sometimes attends their annual meeting in hot August in Alabama, you know, outside, perhaps Alabama. So, I mean, it's indirect. You know, it's not a direct influence. Uh, I mean, testifying before Congress or before committees is, is one direct way to do it. But I see historical research like Pete's working its way through farm organizations that do testify before Congress and do have access to policymakers. Uh, you know, not that they win, but they're certainly small victories and big defeats. But, you know, with organizations like that, and the Federation of Southern Co-ops is not the only one, but I, again, that sort of goes back to my first point, doing good research, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's what scholars do. That's what academics do. So what about other modes of doing history? What about the act of teaching in the classroom and educating not just future scholars, but future citizens of America, people who might not even major in history, or curating museum ex exhibitions that will hopefully reach an even wider swath than might step into a college classroom. Have you seen those uh, as sites of potential for starting change? Yeah. In, a, in museum work, there's great opportunities to educate the public. And the exhibit I worked on, Science in American Life, we gave what I think is a bold exhibit about science. And we had things in there about the Manhattan Project, about nuclear testing, about pesticides. And I think what we put there was far more educational than what I could say in front of a class. Uh, I never got to do an exhibit on agriculture. I never got to do an exhibit on all my all, all the work that I've done in agriculture. What a lost opportunity. Wow. In spite of... Uh, advocating that from the time I arrived at the museum until I left. One of the curators, my supervisor, said, well, we're not going to do a big exhibit on agriculture because it will get stale. And he was working on one on capitalism. And I just looked at him <laughs> and I said, capitalism's not going to get stale? <laughs> 
but that's the kind of nonsense I had to put up. <laughs> oh, I, I totally agree with you, Anastasia. I think the certainly parallel and perhaps of, of greater impact is for university, for college teachers, is in the classroom. I mean, as you mm-hmm. say, you know, so I would, almost every year, I would teach a course of roughly 100 people on uh, agricultural history, agriculture mm-hmm. and social change, it was called. But it was really, uh, you know, agricultural history. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, you know, I was in the College of Agriculture, where rural sociology is. And uh, so a lot of farm kids, you know, would take the class. And I sort of saw my role as telling them their history and their grandparents' history. And I would urge them to go back home after hearing about something and talking about, well, what do you remember about the New Deal or, you know, something like that. And uh, so you never know the impact of specifically of of teaching. But I think I would hear occasionally from uh, a student about, you know, remembering something. But I think just putting forth that message repeatedly, you know, in class and the idea, uh, the promise, the, the, the possibility of a democratizing thrust and, and even a democratizing state, I can only hope that that had some positive influence. And, and I think it probably does over the long run. It's very helpful for me on a very personal level to hear optimism in these times. So thank you both for, for talking through this with me. Thinking practically about the very specific issues facing us today, um, we do have a farm bill that is going to expire in September. The last time we had a farm bill expire here in the United States, it remained expired for more than two years before we were able to pass one in 2014. Um, So it's anyone's bet as to whether we will pass one this fall or next fall or the fall after that. But what do each of you think that your scholarship uh, brings to the conversations we should be having about what this new farm bill could or should look like or take into account or strive toward? Well, my first reaction is to side with Pete on his pessimism. <laughs> I mean, this farm bill, I've you know, read some summaries of it, not, not a lot of detail, but it's just unbelievably bad. And the, uh, the small little crumbs that past farm bills have thrown toward small farmers and the black land-grant institutions, those, even those have been taken out. In this political environment, in the mm-hmm. Trump administration in particular, and the USDA more specifically, I'll, I'll try to come up with some optimism, but at the moment, I just, uh, it's, it's just very hard. But then I do remember, you know, my colleagues and friends and organizations like the Federation of Southern Co-ops, I mean, they're, they can't afford to give up. You know, they, mm-hmm. this is their life and the thousands of farmers that they represent. And so they have to be engaged and try and, and put forth their best political effort and try to win something. 
So it seems like your primary point of entry and concern is concern over land distribution, land ownership, and land tenure, as opposed to necessarily questions of, of subsidies or organic versus conventional or um, the nutritional um, legislation that's packed into the farm bill. Pete, um, do your priorities lie with land um, equitable distribution as well, or do you do you approach this farm bill with a different set of priorities and ideas, optimism or pessimism? <laughs> well, I'm not up on it the way this is, and it would probably be the best thing if the farm bill was not passed in September. But hope that Congress would change, and in mm. November, and offer a more hospitable look at small farmers. That's maybe not going to happen, but I think it would be better than what what's going on now, mm-hmm. because the the people in charge now are not going to do anything for the environment. It'll be detrimental to the environment. I don't know about organic. Since organics become big business, they may be more favorable to organic. But there are things that small farmers, African-American farmers, the African-American farmers I've talked to say that the Department of Agriculture is still racist. They still are treated poorly when they go in and try to do business with the department. And that needs to be erased. There's no place for that anymore. Never was. Absolutely. So I think there is, uh, you mentioned uh, additional issues of organic versus, con- versus conventional and, and nutrition. I think there are coalitions uh, around the country, policy advocates, that uh, coalesce you know, these different groups, these many different groups. I think there's uh, National Family Farm Coalition, I think, is one. And there are others, and environmental issues in particular, that are pretty much on the same page across the list of uh, items you mentioned. You know, subsidies and organics and environment and small farm or mid-sized farm oriented. And, you know, politically, you know, that's where I would put my hope and, and work is in those groups that that have a pretty comprehensive counter to the objectionable parts of the current farm bill proposal. And and do all of these thoughts lead you to have hopes for future directions, future questions that scholars of environment and agriculture um, might pursue in the future? Do you have any great ideas for dissertation topics for undecided early career scholars who are listening to this recording? Or my second book? Yeah. (laughs) I'd like to just draw attention a little bit to something you asked about at the beginning, sort of current trends or recent trajectories within the society, within agricultural Mm -hmm. history society and broader, you know, rural society and, and American society. And one thing, and, and in response to you, your specific question, there's been this tremendous growth of overlap between environmental historians and agricultural historians. In other words, they're the same thing. You know, in many cases, Sarah Phillips is a good example. Uh, she's an environmental historian who does her work in agriculture, is one way to put it. And I think that is a 
that's a very exciting area and a growing area within the larger field of agricultural history. And the other thing I think is this transnationalism, another big trend in the history profession, but has sort of finally gotten to to agricultural history for the most part between New Deal agricultural policy and Mexican agrarian policy in terms of land reform. So I think that's another uh, trend and a very exciting uh, within the academia, you know, very exciting uh, thrust of new agricultural historians. Well, while Jess is, is looking at broader issues, I've always been wanting to know more about pesticides and there's a lot of things, a lot of litigation that you could study, there's a lot of uh, documents in the National Archives, Agricultural Research Service, the EPA, and in litigation there's so much to learn about things like pesticide drift and and that kind of thing. And also, these local committees, I'd really like to know more about how they've operated over time. And I'm not sure the documentation is there, but a good historian might dig some really interesting things out to explain. Because what happens is, in these counties, you have an elite group of farmers who are elected year after year to these committees whether it's the ASCS or the Farmer's Home or whatever, and they control the direction of agriculture in that county. And it's not democratic. And there's a lot of chicanery. Of course, there are a lot of good people that serve on these committees and do good work, but I've run across a lot of chicanery where especially acreage allotments were handed out to family and office workers and all that violating the trust that we put in these people. I'd like to know more about those things on a local level, and especially litigation, pesticides. This is a lot more to be learned about all that. Well, yeah. I look forward to the additional shelf of books that <laughs> your provocation will inspire. Um, you two have been so kind to sit here and talk to me instead of going straight to lunch. I want to thank you so much for this. Um, well, Greatly enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> Stage a day, PhD student in history and Hagley scholar at the University of Delaware, speaking with Jess Gilbert, Emeritus Professor of Community and Environmental Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and also speaking with historian Pete Daniel, author most recently of Dispossession, Discrimination Against African-American Farmers in the Age of Civil Rights. Learn more about Anastasia Day's work at historianinthegarden.com. You've been listening to Edgefex, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Kate Worsan and me, Sarah Thomas, with special thanks to Anastasia Day for recording this interview at the Agricultural History Society meeting. The music you're listening to is by Julian Lynch. Stay tuned for more podcast episodes in the coming weeks. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, 
Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps us connect with new listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter, at EdgeFXMag. And, as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.